turn together in Holy Scripture to the book of Isaiah, chapter 64. Isaiah 64, this is God's Word. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence, as when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. When thou didst terrible things which we looked not for, Thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness, those that remember thee in thy ways. Behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned, In those is continuance, and we shall be saved. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities." But now, O Lord, Thou art our Father, we are the clay, and Thou art potter. We are all, we all are the work of Thy hand. Be not wroth, very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech Thee, we are all Thy people. Thy holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praise thee, is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Wilt thou refrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very sore? So far we read in God's holy word. In light of that reading of Holy Scripture, let us turn to the Heidelberg Catechism and consider together the instruction of Lord's Day 22. are the final two articles in the Apostles' Creed. Question 57 of Lord's Day 22 asks, What comfort doth the resurrection of the body afford thee? Answer, that not only my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ its head, but also that this my body, being raised up by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like unto the glorious body of Christ. And then question 58, what comfort takest thou from the article of life everlasting? But since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, after this life I shall inherit perfect salvation, which eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive, and that to praise God therein forever. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 22 is a Lord's Day on the Christian's hope. And Isaiah 64 that we just read a moment ago seems like a rather bleak chapter to read in light of the Christian's hope. Imagine the blue sky above us suddenly torn in pieces the way that you tear notebook paper out of a notebook. Imagine the Lord descending through the gap that has now been torn in the heavens with His eyes blazing like lightning. Imagine the mountains erupting with hot ash as the lava rolls into the boiling sea. That's the vision Isaiah gives us of God coming in His wrath at the end of the world 
in verses 1 and 2. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down to thy presence, as when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. And we all are as an unclean thing, he goes on to say in verse 6. Even our best works, that is, our righteousnesses, are as filthy rags. What do they count before this holy God who is coming in His anger? They are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf. Filthy rags and dry leaves will only add fuel to the fire that God is going to ignite when He comes down in His judgment. So for guilty sinners like ourselves, the coming of the Lord and the end of the world would seem like an awful prospect. Where's the hope in that? Yet this dreadful picture that the Bible paints regarding the end of the world and the coming of the Lord in His judgment is exactly what makes the Christian's hope so reliable. The unique feature of Christian hope is that it does not turn away from the truth. The truth is that we are sinners and that we're going to die because we live in a fallen and cursed world. The truth is that we have no right to expect anything from God on account of the things that our hands have done except for damnation. Even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. If you will have hope, you must be able to look grim reality in the face and reckon with it. And the Christian hope does this. But the Christian hope does not leave us standing there on the precipice ready to fall in. The Christian hope overcomes this grim reality of our fallen condition by looking away from ourselves, looking away from the things that our hands have done, and looking unto God and His mercy. So that the Christian says and confesses, I believe. And I believe in a God who is able to bring out life where before there was only death. And I believe in a God who is able to and who is going to build an eternal city where currently there are only ruins. And I believe in a God who is able to and who will make saints out of sinners and who will put everlasting joy into otherwise shriveled up and dead hearts. Eye hath not seen this, ear hath not heard this, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive this, as Isaiah says in verse 4, and as the Lord's Day picks up on in question and answer 58. Yet I believe, I believe there is a perfect salvation that God is preparing for me and for all of His saints, and in hope, I will wait to inherit that perfect salvation. That's the theme that I call your attention to this morning as we consider the instruction of Lord's Day 22, waiting to inherit perfect salvation. First, we're going to identify what that perfect salvation is for us as individuals in the resurrection of the body. And then in the second point, we'll see what that perfect salvation means for all of us as the elect members of the church and for the whole creation in the life everlasting. And then we'll conclude where we began by showing that this is true hope. We have true hope as Christians. Waiting to inherit perfect salvation first, the resurrection of the body. Secondly, the life everlasting. Finally, true hope. Perfect salvation, that perfect salvation that we wait on God to provide us with, includes the resurrection of the body. And that makes this a very personal and individual matter for us. Your body is not just a suitcase for your soul. As you pass through this life on your way to heaven, I believe that's a common mistake that Christians sometimes make. We think of our body almost like it's just a temporary vessel, like a suitcase that holds our soul as we're passing through to a different destination. And the implication of that is, my body isn't really me. 
My body is going to die, my body is going to be buried and decay, and it's only my soul that counts in the end. But if that were true, the creed would not speak of the resurrection of the body, it would speak of the resurrection of the soul. Your body very much belongs to who and what you are as a person and as an individual. When God made Adam, he formed him out of the dust and breathed into him the breath of life. And it was only when he had put together both body and soul that the Bible says that man became a living soul. Body and soul are intimately connected as a part of who and what we are as human beings which is why death is so inherently violent and upsetting. And why even though we know that death for us is a portal into life, we still tremble at it a little bit because death involves the tearing apart of what God created to be a whole thing together, body and soul. But what that also means is that it's a very personal and individual matter when my body is raised back to life. The resurrection of the body is something that will happen in the future. It's a new wonder work of God, but it will not be resurrection into something that is entirely unfamiliar, something that is entirely different from our experience right now. It will be a resurrection of the same body, the same body that you have right now, the same body that was conceived first in your mother's womb. When the Lord made you, He made you in this body that you have right now today. He curiously knit together this body that you have right now today in the lowest parts of the earth, as the psalmist says in Psalm 139. So think about that for a minute. Think about your body and everything that has happened to you in your body and everything that you have experienced in your body. Think of the joys that you have experienced in your body the pleasant experiences of friendship and of celebration that you have enjoyed in your living flesh right now today. Think of the sights that you have taken in with your eyes that have been processed by your brain. Think of the embraces that you have felt in these living arms that you have. Think of the sorrows. Think of the grief. Grief that you feel not only in your soul sometimes, but you feel almost in your very bones because of something or someone that you lost. Think of the memories of pain and suffering that you wish maybe weren't there anymore, but have almost become embedded in your flesh. You think that when a person goes through an intense or violent episode in their life, that when that episode is over, this person could just move on and forget about it. But the truth is, there are some wounds that never fully heal. There are some experiences that a person goes through that become almost like scar tissue. Scar tissue that is reflected even in their body because of this close and intimate connection between the body and the soul. My body, your body. Now that's the body that the Lord today is referring to when it speaks of the resurrection of the body in question and answer 57. This, my body, being raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like unto the glorious body of Christ. The resurrection does not mean God will make an entirely new body in the new heavens and the new earth, and then I will inhabit that new body that I never inhabited before. He will take this, my body, after this, my heart has stopped beating, and these, my lungs, have ceased expanding and contracting and filling with oxygen, and these, my eyes, have gone dark, and the flesh of this body has dissolved back into the dust so that only bones remain. He will take this my body, and you say that of yourself, this my body, and he will call this body back to life by the power of his word. It's intensely personal and individual. You are no more vulnerable than when your body is in the grave and your soul is naked in the hands of God. The resurrection is when this merciful God 
takes the pieces that are rent apart in death, puts them back together, and restores them, makes them whole again. On the other hand, the, re the resurrection of the body is very much a powerful and new work of God. So maybe the thought of being raised again in this, my body, is something that worries you, especially in light of everything we just said. Does this mean I will be raised again with the scars that are embedded in this, my body? What if I was born with a disability? That's all I've ever experienced or known. If it's this, my body, that's raised, will I still have that disability in the resurrection? What if I have PTSD from some traumatic experience that I suffered in my life? Will I still have those memories that have become so much a part of who I am when I'm raised up in the new heavens and the new earth? So it's important to see that the resurrection is a powerful and new work of God. It's the resurrection of this, my body, but it's the resurrection of this, my body, to a new life. The Lord's Day says when the body is raised, it will be raised by the power of Christ and it will be made like unto His glorious body. But also, question and answer 57, that this, my body, being raised up by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like unto the glorious body of Christ. Now, what does that mean exactly? What does it mean that our bodies will be like the glorious body of Christ? Given a little bit of a window into what the glorious body of Christ looked like in the accounts of the resurrection in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Talk about Jesus rising from the dead and passing through his grave clothes and passing out of the tomb itself and appearing in a room at one moment and disappearing the next moment and appearing before others and doing wondrous things. So when the Lord's Day says that our body will be made like unto the glorious body of Christ, does that mean that we will pass through walls? Does it mean that we will be able to disappear and then reappear in another place? that we will be able to do all kinds of things that seem supernatural to us now? Well, a couple of things to keep in mind. Uh, first of all, we need to remember that when Jesus did those things, the situation was a bit unique. Jesus was raised in a glorious new body. It was really a body that God raised him up in that was fit for the new heavens and the new earth. But here he was in this glorious resurrection body in the old, fallen, and cursed world. And he was interacting with that old, fallen, and cursed world. It's like the new heavens and the new earth represented in the raised body of Jesus Christ was colliding a bit with this old heavens and this new earth. And there were some strange phenomena that were taking place as a result of that. We should also remember that when we are raised and when we have new bodies, what is it that will make the resurrection so wonderful? What is it that will make the resurrection so glorious? Is the glory of the resurrection that we will be able to do supernatural things? And the answer is no. What makes the glory, what makes the resurrection glorious and what makes the resurrection so wonderful is that we will be at rest. Finally, after all the years of life in this cursed and fallen world, we will be at rest. And we will be at rest not only in our soul, but we will be at rest in our body, in our flesh, in our eyes, in our ears, in our senses. We have gone through terrible suffering in this life. We tend to think it would be better if we could just forget all of that. If I could just forget about the thing that I went through. It sometimes keeps me up at night and then I'd be happier. But we need to remember that forgetting comes at the price 
losing something of ourselves in the sense of who and what we are. We have to know ourselves as sinners before we can understand and appreciate the grace of God and forgiveness, don't we? And if we forget that we were sinners, we lose the importance of redemption and grace. We have to know ourselves as broken before we can understand the wonder of what it means to be restored. Rest. The resurrection is rest. And rest is what comes after the fight. Rest is what comes after the struggle. But rest is all the sweeter, all the more wonderful, all the more beautiful because of the fight and because of the struggle. And that's what the resurrection is like. The resurrection is not forgetfulness. The resurrection is Sabbath. The resurrection is rest after hard labor. It is peace after the battle. You don't have to create that peace for yourself. God gives it to you. Revelation 21 says he wipes every tear out of the eyes of his people. He will ease the stressed limbs. He will give the gift of life and joy. A gift of life and joy that you can feel in your very bones because you will be alive before him in the body. Perfect salvation includes the resurrection of the body and we can see that. Nevertheless, maybe we're thinking right now, well, that's, that's all well and good. That perfect salvation comes when I'm raised in my body, but what happens when I die? What happens in that period of time when my body is there in the grave and it's decaying and it's turning into bones and dust and my soul is separate from my body? What goes on then? Is there hope for me then? Is there salvation for me then? The answer is yes. It's called the intermediate state. Or the period in between death and the resurrection of the body. The word of God speaks to that. And our Lord's day speaks to that. But I do want to be very clear. And I do want to emphasize. That intermediate state is not the perfect salvation that we wait for. When we say that we are waiting in hope for perfect salvation, we're not talking about the intermediate state. We're not talking about that time when our soul is in heaven before the resurrection of the body. Perfect means complete. Perfect means that we possess and experience everything that God intends for us to possess and experience. If you set the table, you will not say that dinner is ready if all there are are cups and forks on the table You also need the plates and the spoons and the knives and the napkins and the food and the chairs and the people. Then it's perfect, as in complete and full and everything is ready and in order. Well, the Bible says that the souls in heaven are still waiting for something. They have perfection in the sense that they have been set free from the cursedness and brokenness of this world. They are no longer experiencing the effects of sin and of the curse. And yet even the souls in heaven are are waiting for something. The book of Revelation says that they cry out. Revelation 6, verse 10, speaks of the souls under the altar. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? These are the souls of the martyred saints who have been put to death for their witness of Jesus Christ. And they cry out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth. That indicates that even the souls in heaven are are waiting for something. They're waiting for perfect salvation. And they're in tune with God's work here below. Sometimes we imagine that the souls of God's people in heaven are paying attention to us in our everyday lives. And I don't know if there's any biblical evidence for that, but The souls in heaven are paying attention to the the big work that God is doing. They're paying attention to the passing of the years and, and waiting for the return of Christ and the resurrection of the body. They long to inherit perfect salvation in body and soul. 
Nevertheless, there is that intermediate state. And there's a beautiful hope that we have in the expectation that when we die, our souls will go to heaven. And maybe that will not be the perfect salvation that we are waiting for in the resurrection of the body, but it will be better than what we have now. When we die, when our eyes close to this life for the last time, when we breathe our last breath, and when our heart stops beating, we'll be with Jesus immediately, consciously, in our soul, with Jesus. We will experience Him, experience Him in all of His glorified beauty and wonder. He will give us rest, rest for the soul. The Lord's Day speaks to that. It speaks to it, again, not as the main thing. The main thing is the resurrection of the body. Nevertheless, my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ's head. After I die, my soul will be taken up to Christ's head. That's a comforting confession. That's a confession and a truth that takes the fear out of death. Yes, there's something unsettling about having our soul and our body taken apart from one another. Nevertheless, entering into the grave is entering a portal that takes us into life itself. That's what Jesus said on the cross. Think about it. There he is on the cross, about ready to die. And there next to him is this thief who has lived his whole life as a brigand, robbing, stealing, perhaps murdering, a follower of Barabbas. And yet Jesus says today, this day, not tomorrow, not after spending a thousand years or two thousand years in purgatory, having all of your sins purged away, not after spending a long period of time in soul sleep, unconscious of anything, much like the Lord, but today, this day, you will be with me in paradise. The hope that we have of going to heaven in our souls comes out of the union that we have with Jesus Christ, an unbreakable union. Every believer is united to Jesus Christ as the members of the body are united to the head. And there can be no separation between Christ, the head, and the members of His body. There are some who say that when believers die, they will go into a state of unconscious soul sleep. And it's only the resurrection of the body that gives us hope. But that's not true. Because for a believer to go into a state of unconscious soul sleep would mean separation between that believer and Christ the Lord. And that can never be. Thou shalt guide me by thy counsel, the psalmist says, and afterward lead me to glory, because there can be no separation between Christ and His own, whom He has purchased through His death. We mustn't be troubled over the condition of our loved ones who have died in Christ, and we must not grieve for their loss as those who have no hope. We may grieve. Death is an awful thing. We may grieve. We may shed tears. We may not sorrow as those who have no hope. They are not unconscious in soul sleep. They are not burning in the flames of purgatory to purge away their sins as Rome teaches. They have no sins to purge away. Their sins have been abolished, taken away through the death of Christ. They are at rest. Perfect salvation is the resurrection of the body that we hope for. And that brings the focus on our personal experience. But now in the second point, we're going to look a little bit more broadly. We're going to say, all right, this isn't just something that I look for myself as a person and as an individual, but there is a perfect salvation that God is preparing for all of His people and for the whole creation. And that's the life everlasting. That's our confession in the Apostles' Creed. I believe the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. 
There are many wonderful things we can say about the life everlasting. For starters, we can say that the life everlasting will involve more than just you, and it will involve more than just me. It will involve all the saints of God. The book of Jude speaks of Jesus returning at the end of the world. And when he returns, behind him will be ten thousands of his saints, a multitude of individuals, all redeemed, all restored by the death and resurrection and outpoured spirit of Jesus Christ. And there will be all the multitude of the heavenly angels, which the Bible says number in the thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands. Sometimes I think we wonder if we're going to get bored in heaven. We're going to be there forever. We're going to run out of things to do. We're going to run out of people to talk to. If you ever imagine that you're going to get bored in heaven, remember, first of all, that you will have God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is infinitely deep. You will go on searching him and exploring him and getting to know him, and you will never run to the end of him because he is an infinite well of life and salvation. Then you will also have all of the saints, 10,000 by 10,000 of the saints of the Lord, as many as the stars in heaven and the sand on the seashore, and you'll be able to talk to them, and they'll be able to talk to you. You'll be able to talk to Peter and John. You'll be able to talk to Moses and Aaron, David and Jonathan, and some of the saints whom you have known in this life. They'll all be there in the resurrection. We're not going to run out of people to talk to. We're not going to run out of things to do. It will be wonderful. But it's not only the humans and the angels who will be there in the life everlasting. But the life everlasting concerns the creation itself. The whole creation. It's not just our human bodies that will die and be raised again to glory, but it's the whole universe that, as it were, will die and be raised to glory. The elements of this old world as we know it will melt with a fervent heat, Peter says, and all the works of men that are in this world will be destroyed. The old creation will be purged of everything that defiles and every aspect of the curse that was brought initially in the Garden of Eden will be destroyed and removed. It's like this old creation and everything in it will die. God loves His creation. He says that in John 3, verse 16. God so loved the world, the cosmos, that He will not leave that creation in a state of ashes and ruin for all of eternity, but He will renew also the creation itself. He will resurrect the creation itself. He will make all things new. There will be a new heaven, a new sky above. There will be a new earth. There will be a kingdom of peace wherein righteousness dwells. Rightly, we criticize the ideas that some Christians have of an earthly millennial kingdom of Jesus. Some Christians have the idea that the world is going to get better and better through Christian efforts. And then there will be a Christian kingdom that lasts for a thousand years, and after the end of that thousand-year kingdom, Jesus will return and introduce the everlasting state. That's called post-millennialism. Others say that Jesus will come and personally establish a kingdom here on this earth for a thousand years. And that's called premillennialism. But the problem with both premillennialism and postmillennialism is that they say that the kingdom of heaven really belongs to this age. And that they promise a kind of Christian utopia that will come before, before all things are broken down and before all things are made new. It's an earthly kingdom. Premillennialism and postmillennialism, what unites them is this idea of an earthly kingdom, a Christian utopia. And that's wrong. That's wrong. There will be no Christian utopia. There will be the coming of Antichrist. There will be something that looks very much like a Christian utopia, but is deceptive and a lie. The truth is, there will not be a fully realized kingdom of heaven until this world and everything in it is broken down to the elements. Everything must burn 
the Word of God says, and that includes that old city of Jerusalem that the premillennialist thinks is going to be rebuilt, and that includes the ruins of the temple that the premillennialist thinks is going to be rebuilt, and that includes all of the works of art and culture that men have made that the postmillennialist thinks is going to have a place in the kingdom. It's all going to burn. It's all going to be destroyed, and only then will God make all things new. But let's not misunderstand in our vehemence to reject premillennialism and postmillennialism. It is this creation that Christ has redeemed, and it is this creation that God will restore. It is this creation with the sky above and the earth beneath, with the trees and the birds and the living things that God made in the beginning, this creation that will be our home in a life everlasting. As much as this my body will die and rise again, so much will this creation die and rise again. And God will make all things new, revitalizing it, purging it from all the defiling effects of sin and of the curse. Revelation 21, verse 27, says of that new heavens and the new earth, There shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. There will be no serpent who sneaks into the new heavens and the new earth and ruins everything. For the devil and the false prophet and all of the wicked will be in a lake of fire. There are some other details about this future life that we can gather from the witness of the Bible. The life everlasting will be safe. It will be safe. This present age is characterized by all kinds of influences that jeopardize our safety. There are lions and wolves who run off with the sheep and devour them. There are diseases. There are wars. There are threats. But in the life everlasting, the lion will lay down with the lamb. And a little child will play with a viper, a poisonous viper. There will be no cause for fear, no cause for alarm. There will be safety. The life everlasting will be sinless, which means that we personally will be sinless. Imagine, beloved, if your soul was impervious to being drawn away from your, by your lust and enticed. Imagine if you did not have to fight every day against the lusts of the old man of sin. That's what it will be like in life everlasting. But it's not just that we personally will not have sin. Nobody will have sin. There will be no harsh words spoken. There will be no bullies in the life everlasting. There will be no gossip and slander. There will be no endless interest in human drama. Only the pursuit of deeper and richer and fuller life and friendship with God and the saints forever and ever and ever without sin. And it will be beautiful. We like to think of the way the Bible talks about streets of gold and gates that are decked with gemstones. And we like to imagine that pure river of crystal flowing through the trees of life and the luscious fruit on those trees. And we, want, we think, how beautiful. What a beautiful picture the Bible paints for us of the life everlasting. But what we need to understand, beloved, is that those are just pictures. They're just pictures. The truth is it's going to be far more beautiful, far more wonderful than we can even understand. And that's why the Lord's Day is just a little bit vague in the way that it explains the nature of the life everlasting. We want details when we read question and answer 58. What is this life everlasting we confess? Tell me about it. What's it going to be like? What are we going to do in heaven every day? How are we going to spend our time? Are we going to play games? Are we going to listen to music? Are we Are going to have good conversations? Are we Are going to go for walks? What are we going to do? But what the Lord's Day is saying and the answer it gives in question and answer 58 Taking its lead from Isaiah 64, verse 4, is people of God, you have no idea. 
you have no idea. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man to conceive. And it's better that way. If you could see into the future right now from where you're sitting into the life everlasting, if you could see it, and if you could hear the sounds that you're going to hear on that day and take in the sights that you're going to take in, you would misunderstand it. You would misunderstand it. Because you're still living in this age. And you're still living with this body that is under the effects of the fall and the curse. You have a natural body, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And it needs to be raised. It needs to become a spiritual body. A body like unto the glorious body of Jesus Christ. Which means you need eyes that are capable of taking in and appreciating the sights that will be there in the new heavens and the new earth. You need new ears, you need a new mind, you need a resurrection body and soul, and then you will be in a position to understand. But as for now, the Bible gives us a little snapshot. It gives us little pictures. And that's not to our detriment. That actually adds to the anticipation. It helps us hope for it with an even greater intensity. It's like when you show your children pictures. You're planning a vacation. You're going to go to some beautiful place and you show your children pictures. Look, this is where we're going to go. Look at how fun this looks. Look at like, what a wonderful place this is going to be. And a big part of the fun as parents is watching them get all excited about it because they've never seen this before. And you're giving them a little snapshot and that, that gets them ready, that gets them excited, but they're really not going to understand it until they get there. And then it's going to be even better. That's Paul's point. Romans 8 Verse 24, and he says, we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it? And that brings us to the final point of the sermon, which is this true hope that the Christian faith gives to us. We have true hope, true hope that will help us not in the future only, but will help us today as we face whatever it is that we're facing today, the battle that we have against our sinful nature, or the struggles that we have in our life, or the trials that we are going through in the body. We have true hope. It's a spiritual Hope, a spiritual reality that God actually puts in our hearts. It's a gift of the Spirit, which is why the Catechism puts this confession into our mouths. Question and answer 58, what, what comfort do you take from the article of life everlasting? And it doesn't just talk about that perfect salvation which I have not seen and ear have not heard, but it starts by saying this, since I now feel in, in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. It's not just something that I think about or that I'm looking forward to in the future, but I, I feel it now. I feel it today in my heart. It's, it's like it's a part of me. I have this hope. But what does that mean? That I feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. And Again, that's, that's one of those phrases that could potentially make us feel a little bit worried. And maybe you say to yourself, well, I don't always feel that way. I don't always feel eternal joy in my heart. In fact, sometimes I feel very sad. Sometimes maybe I, my experience is the experience of depression. Experience of being low. So how do we understand it when the catechism says that since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy after this life, I shall inherit perfect salvation? What is that? Well, the Lord's Day does not intend to say that we, we don't have sadness in this life or that we don't have grief or that we don't have sorrows or that having grief and having sorrows or even experiencing depression means that we don't have or experience this hope. We have it. The whole idea of hope is 
We're standing down here in the valley. We're down here in the darkness and we're looking to something that we're anticipating that's going to be better than right now. It's hope in contrast to the sadness and grief that I have right now here in this fallen world. But if that worries you and you say, well, I don't always feel that way, as the catechism describes, ask yourself this. When a preacher stands behind a pulpit like this and lays out the biblical truth concerning heaven and the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, Where you want to be? Is that where you want to be? You want to be with Jesus Christ? You want to be at rest with Him? You want to feel what it's like not to have sin anymore? You want to know what it's like not to experience doubts, fears, anxieties? You desire that. Was your heart stirred this morning by the thoughts of everlasting life? Well, that's it. That's what the catechism is talking about. That's the beginning of eternal joy that God makes us feel as we encounter the truth about heaven. Sometimes it's nothing more than a whiff. Sometimes it's a little more than a snapshot. But it makes us long and desire to be closer to God and to know Him better and deeper in contrast to right now, which is the experience of living in a fallen and broken world and having all of these challenges that we face every day. We long to know Him without the constraints of a depraved heart. We long to know Him without the fear of death and without the fear of judgment. Jesus says, this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. If you know Him and want to know Him, you have the beginning of eternal joy that the Lord's Day is speaking about, and it's a spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit has given you. It's true hope. On the other hand, if you simply have no desire for this at all, if you hear a sermon about heaven, and you think, well, that's just a bunch of nonsense, that's just wishful thinking. That's just what uh, a philosopher in the past said is the opium of the masses, a false prospect out there in the future that's just intended to keep people under control today. If that's your thought. If your thought is, I'd rather get the most out of this life than wait around for a future life that I don't believe in, I don't know what to tell you other than what the Bible says, which is you must repent. You must repent. You need to have your mind renewed. You need to have your heart changed. You need to have your treasure not here below where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. You need to have your treasure in heaven. And until such time as you are brought to such repentance, this hope that the catechism speaks of, that beginning of eternal joy, will not be your experience. It won't be. But beloved, you have this hope. You have it. And you have it not just because you have feelings of eternal joy, or the beginning of feelings of eternal joy. But you have it because the beginnings of the feeling of eternal joy is evidence that you believe in God. And you believe in Jesus Christ. And ultimately that's what makes our hope true. Feelings go up and down. They do. But this is what God says in His Word. He says, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm going to rend the heavens. I'm going to come down. I'm going to make the mountains flow before me, before me. I'm going to judge my enemies. And I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to create a new city where the ruins of the old one once stood. I'm going to do it. God's a God who keeps His promise. 
And if you ever doubt that God is a God who keeps His promise, then look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember what God said in the Old Testament. He said, I'm going to send a mediator. I'm going to send a lamb. There's going to be a sacrifice. And that sacrifice will deal forever with the sins of my people. I'm going to send a redeemer. and He's going to give access to my people, to my holy house. Access to them, to my holy hill. And did God keep that promise? He did. He kept it even at great cost to himself. He kept it even though it meant that his own beloved son would go down deeper into the valley than you and I will ever have to go down into hell itself. Now when he says, I'm going to send him back. I'm going to send my son Jesus Christ, who was raised victorious into the new, into the new life and ascended up to my right hand. I'm going to send him back. You know he's going to keep his promise. Believe it, beloved. It's the article of your faith. Say it every Sunday. I believe in the resurrection of the body. I believe the life everlasting. Because you believe in God. God who makes the promise of, of his word. He will give us the thing that he promised. Believe it. Trust in him. And take hope. As you wait for perfect salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word and for what it promises us and lays out before us, even though we see it only in a little snapshot and in a little picture. And we believe it. We believe that it will be far better even than anything that we conceive of now. And we pray that thou wilt prepare us as we go through the experiences of life, as we face disappointments, as we face sadness and grief and loss, that that will cause us to live loosely to this present age, which is an evil age cause us to know that we are only pilgrims and that our citizenship is in heaven and create in us a hunger for the life everlasting that we will be heavenly minded seeking the things which are above where Christ Jesus dwells at thy right hand forgive us Father when we have doubted thee when we have left in, in when we have lived in fears that are unwarranted in light of what thy word says and lift us up into the hope of the gospel, that we may stand before thee in confidence and hope, and with the beginnings of eternal joy in our hearts, as we confidently wait and expect the life everlasting and the resurrection of the body. Hear our prayer, O Father, not because we are worthy, but in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.